0: Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, a podcast that embraces politics with the loving grip of a hungry boa constrictor who's found absolutely nothing else to eat for weeks. This is episode 93, I'm Tiernan Duyeb and this week I'm taking initiative from Prime Minister and Borg Queen, Theresa May, who said in her final Road to Brexit speech last week, we have a shared interest in getting this right, so let's get on with it. So, I'm going to take over 18 months to sort this episode of the podcast out, and by the time you hear it, it'll just have vague notions of any actual content. Yes, the road to Brexit speeches finally ended, much like many roads in last week's Snowmageddon, without having made much distance, if any at all. Theresa May said that it was a very important moment in history, but to be honest, I mostly forgot what she was saying as she said it. The Prime Minister set out five tests, although we're not sure who should be taking the tests, who's marking them, or what happens if, as is likely, the UK government doesn't do enough reading and planning to pass them. Still, the tests, it seems, are. Number one, is Brexit Brexit? Number two, does it Brexit though? Number three, are you sure it smells like Brexit? Number four, how many Brexits can you fit into the back of a mini that we won't be able to sell abroad? And number five, when do I get to go home? I mean, I'm summarising, of course, but I don't want to tell you what the actual tests that Theresa May set out are, as it's not helpful for me if you fall into a coma at the start of this podcast. What did we learn from her speech? Well, the UK will be taking the too unlimited stance, a.k.a. there will be no no deal, but there will also be some cherry picking, despite an understanding that we can't cherry pick, not least because all those who do the cherry picking won't be allowed in and all the cherries will rot and die. May also said that the fishing industry would benefit as we regain access to our waters, which was amazing because then two days later, thousands of people around the UK suffered from burst pipes and no water at all. Theresa May summed up her speech on the Andrew Marsh show on Sunday by saying, sometimes we'll do it in the same way as the EU, sometimes we'll do it in a different way, sometimes we'll achieve the same result as the EU, but from a different method. Which to me sounds a lot like a euphemism for all the ways we'll be fucking ourselves. May believes the UK can set an example to the world in how we negotiate with the EU after Brexit. And I'm sure the world is reckoning, yes you can, and we'll all very much learn from your mistakes and avoid doing everything you do. A leaked memo earlier in the week revealed that Foreign Secretary and concussed Haystack Boris Johnson had told May that it wasn't the government's job to maintain a no-border in Ireland. Though, as he seems to think that his role is travelling around the world offending people, getting British citizens arrested and rugby tackling small Japanese children, I'm starting to think that he applied for his position assuming it was some sort of theme park management company. On Radio 4, Bozo compared the Irish border to the border between the London boroughs of Islington, Camden and Westminster. Yeah, I mean, wow, that's uh, that's perfectly apt, because as a lifelong Londoner, I remember the horrific sectarian violence by Tufnell Park Station uh, between the latte-sipping Guardian readers and cyber-goths. One wanting utopian society for all, except anyone who doesn't like Wes Anderson films or whichever faction of their own group they want to decide is wrong that day, while the other strive for flashing lights unnecessarily high shoes and sex toys. Years of pointless bloodshed with face piercings and cardigans thrown all over the street, terrorising everyone. Yes, it seems out of all the borders in all the world, the foreign secretary decided that the one between Northern Ireland and Ireland was closest to a congestion charge line in London. Though, to be fair, if his entire global knowledge is just based on the tube map, it would explain an awful lot. Over in the US, President of America and what happens if you leave a cup of soup out for too long, Donald Trump, has decided to start a trade war with tariffs on Chinese steel and aluminium imports, though maybe that's because Americans only use aluminium, and also on EU-made cars as part of his America First plan. Trump stated that trade wars are good, once again proving that he has little to no understanding of history as the last big US trade war led to the Great Depression. I suppose with many Americans under Trump already feeling like that, maybe it won't make that much difference this time around. Meanwhile, political Norman Bates and Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, has lost access to top-secret intelligence. A headline that when I read it, I wasn't sure if he'd had it taken away or if he'd just lost it and couldn't find it and was worried he'd eaten it by accident. In China, the government are preparing to change the country's ceremonial legislation so that President Xi Jinping can be in charge forever. Hmm, scary much? I mean, many are concerned that this will return China to an autocratic medieval style rule, which I have to say I'm comforted by, but that's only because according to Ang Lee films, it was pretty awesome back then and really, really colourful. The president's political philosophy, Xi Jinping thought, will be made part of the constitution, even though it sounds like an Instagram page with all those shitty sentimental memes on. These are all decisions being made at China's annual meeting of their parliament or National People's Congress, where apparently one of their many aims is to ratify a law to set up an anti-corruption agency, because after giving their president unlimited rule with no opposition, it seems they've also completely lost any sense of irony. Germany have a government again after unconfirmed Vulcan, Angela Merkel and her party formed a coalition with the Social Democrats. This means she is now Chancellor for the fourth time, because apparently staying in power forever is so 2018. In another complete lack of awareness of irony, the Italian elections have resulted in two anti-establishment parties being the largest parties, and so likely to become the establishment, which I think means that it will be cancelled out and then vanish. And lastly, for World Book Day, otherwise known as Atlas Day in my world book, Chancellor and stock photo model for Germaloid Scream, Philip Hammond, said that his favourite book as a child was George Orwell's 1984, which explains quite a lot about his visions for the future. However, after discussing with his wife, he changed his mind to Dr Seuss's Cat in the Hat books, you know, where a big cat wrecks everything and assumes it will all be cleaned up by magic, which again, explains quite a lot about his visions for the future. Boris Johnson chose the Iliad, the story of Achilles, a man who appeared strong but had a point of weakness in his heel, which is an appropriate tale for a buffoon who carelessly puts his foot in everything. And Theresa May chose Swallows and Amazons, you know, a story about children who fight each other for control of an island. I'll let you, I'll let you do your own jokes with that one. Hey, hey, pod warriors, how are you? Um, I hope you will survive the icy blasts of the beast from the east, all okay. Um, By the time everything started thawing out here in the south uh, on Sunday, I'd moved so little and eaten so much for so many days that I was kind of praying for the snow to continue just to give me a chance to burn all those extra fat reserves away. Um, And our boiler temporarily stopped working at one point, causing us to huddle around a small electric heater, and I sort of chose to see that as a taster of what, say, post-Brexit Britain will be like. It's kind of like how every now and then I'll eat some really burnt toast just to prove that I could survive if the world went like the book The Road. Um, I'm now on high baby alert, or is that baby high alert? I don't know. The former sort of sounds a bit like I'm waiting for a kind of emperor baby or perhaps a very stoned baby, which I'm hoping for neither of, although I guess a stone baby would probably sleep more. Anyway, the due date is this Friday, so Tiny do could be here any day now or not. I mean, babies are even worse than Royal Mail deliveries, because they don't even give a definite date of delivery, let alone a possible period of time. Um, Though, I also assume that when they turn up, a grumpy man won't just throw them at me the wrong way up, while I squiggle a line on an e-pad, so it's not really the same thing at all. Anyway, that all being said, this might be the last podcast before a short break, or there might be one next week. Who knows? Only tiny do, yeb, and I'm not sure they understand the importance of podcasting just yet, though I will try and get them into something easy like, you know, say, cereal very early on. Thank you to those of you who've donated to the podcast, um, regularly pointing out that I will need the coffees purchased via uh, kofi.com forward slash Bro um, as Mummy Barrow and Bruce did this week. Thank you for that. Or as Duncan, who donated to the patreon.com forward slash Bro said, um, he said he did the patreon as I won't be needing a coffee to keep me awake when Tiny Do will be doing that instead. Uh, it is funny how with these donations and messages, I am both very, very grateful, uh, and then I read the warnings about sleep deprivation and I suddenly feel a lot less so. Um, But should you want to donate, then you know where to do that. And yes, the original jingle is back, mainly because I had some mixed responses to the remix last week. But just for you, I've sped up the original for comedy value. <laughs> it sounds like a tiny little mouse is saying it. Um, and that is uh, all for the admin this week. I've probably forgotten something really important, which I'm sure is going to happen loads more as of sort of next week. It's still my firm belief that when people say as a father or as a mother at the beginning of a sentence, it means that whatever they say next is completely invalid, as chances are they haven't got the brain power to actually think anything through due to lack of sleep and constant poo and noise. Um, on this week's show, I won't be following up the Italian elections just yet, as it's not entirely clear what happened and what will happen. Um, Yeah, I've started by telling you what's not on this week's show, which could be a very long list. Um, I mean, I should probably discuss Labour's General Secretary shenanigans, but I'm not. Uh, The government cancelling Leveson 2 inquiry, but I'm not. Or the government's plans to curb benefit sanctions. None of that. There isn't time for any of that this week. Um, There's also no time for the weird news story I read about how you shouldn't read news stories. I mean, what was I meant to do? Should I have read that or should I not have read that? Oh my god! Um, I'm also not going to be humming the Hungarian National Anthem or telling you the shades of my favourite crayons but I do really like that very sort of bright red. Um, There's also nothing this week about the Oscars because A, I don't care and it's not political and B, I mean boring Shape of Water beating Get Out for Best Picture, Oscars so white bait, am I right? Anyway uh, what I am doing though is interviewing Rosalind Bragg at Maternity Action as I thought that would be appropriate, well for me, Uh, maybe less so for you but it's not your podcast so shh see, already good at parenting. Um, Also I'm going to look at the Emperor's New Clothes Brexit plan the government now say they have, even though everyone can clearly see that they just have their butts out. But before I get into all that, here's a sum of this. Standing behind what looked like a chimney stack, uh, like some sort of advert for Mary Poppins to the nanny state, uh, Theresa May announced the government's plans to overhaul the national planning policy framework to tackle the housing crisis. It was an odd speech as she started by addressing young people. You know, the demographic her party often forgets exists, assuming people just go from children to middle age within months, which to be fair is what happens if any of them have to listen to her speeches. May said that young people without family homes were right to be angry about the lack of homes before then reeling off loads of plans to build more affordable housing. And I don't know if you remember, but. Affordable housing is not affordable because it is 80% of market rates. It is more affordable than unaffordable housing, but other than that, hey, it's not great. So hey, young people, you're right to be angry, but if you thought you were pissed off before, wait till you get a load of this shit. It's a really strange tactic from the Prime Minister. The proposals mentioned today were that 10% of homes on major sites should be affordable housing. Whoa! Someone's pushing the boat out, eh? 10% bloody hell, Captain Cray Cray. What's next? Saying that one zero-hours janitor's job will be given to the first working-class person who says, yes, please. The next proposal is for builders to be more open about affordable housing commitments at planning stage. So, you know, as long as Steve says, nah, we can't even be bothered with 10% and lets you know, that's fine. Councils will also have to adopt a new nationwide standard showing housing need in their areas. Great, because that way they can then see all the places that people continue not to be able to afford to live. Oh, and infrastructure is going to be considered at pre-planning stage, but only considered, not actually included. Basically, it's the thought that counts. Oh, and there is something about giving special protection to aged trees, which I think means Lord Tebbit gets left alone. So what all this is, is a lot of hoo-ha without much that will actually do anything. Housing Secretary and anime character Sergeant Frog, Saji Javid, has told councils in England that they'll be stripped of planning powers if not enough homes are built on their areas, which sounds good, but actually councils approve 9 out of 10 planning applications as it is. But out of 321,000 homes that were greenlit in England in 2016 to 2017, only 183,000 were actually built. And that's not the council's fault. The problem is house building companies are sitting on land, probably not literally or they'll get a muddy bum, but they're sitting there earning profit off rising land prices without actually building anything. May did actually mention that's happening in her speech and councils are being told to consider revoking planning permission after two years if nothing has been developed but you might notice that the term consider was there again as apparently as long as it's pondered on that'll do and only after two years which kind of feels like there's still going to be two years of wasted time in the interim Incidentally, former Labour leader tough enough Ed Miliband warned developers off doing this in 2013, which means this is now the third policy after stamp duty abolition for first-time buyers and an energy price cap that the Conservatives have taken from Miliband, so hopefully they'll either start classing themselves as irresponsible Marxists soon, or they'll keep going and lose an election after standing next to a stupid giant headstone. Fingers crossed for either one of those. And all of this feels absolutely irrelevant anyway when it emerged that Sajid Javid surrendered just under £300 million back to the Treasury, even though that was allocated just for affordable homes. And just under £400 million he handed back to the Treasury that was meant to be for the government's flagship starter houses scheme. Overall, that £1 billion that was meant to be for housing development just wasn't spent at all. So do the government actually want to help young people buy property? Or are they just considering it? Babies! Put your hand up if you were a baby once. Yeah, me too. Turns out, according to official statistics, 100% of people were babies at some point. Yeah, even the ones who looked like tiny old men when they were born. And it seems there are babies everywhere all the time. I mean, I saw three just today in the supermarket. I mean, with their parents, obviously, because they'd have trouble reaching the shelves by themselves. But yeah, there's like a constant supply of babies. It's almost as though it's how our species continues to survive or something. And on the medical side of things, in the UK, we are pretty great at caring at getting those babies to the supermarket. Um, Yeah, but what we're not so good at is the support of parents and the babies as their little lives continue. UK maternity pay is one of the lowest... In Europe, with only Ireland being worse than us, which is odd because in Ireland you can't have an abortion, but if you keep the baby, also fuck you. I honestly can't work out what their message is there. Not only is maternity pay bad in the UK, but discrimination against working women who take maternity leave is still high, which is completely mad because I'm pretty certain if you can get through birth and having kids, then there's every chance when you return to work your job will seem piss easy in comparison, and you'll be super productive because you'll just be so relieved not to be cried at every five minutes and vomited on. In terms of shared parental leave in the UK, even the government minister who's promoting more of it, Andrew Griffiths, has admitted he's not allowed to take it for his soon to arrive baby because it doesn't apply for ministers. Brilliant. It's amazing how so many of the government policies involve the word future somewhere, but if you actually want to bring up the people who'll exist in it, they're a lot less bothered. Though, to be fair, I suppose less babies means less resistance for the robot overlords. Hmm, maybe that's what it is. What with me becoming a parent any day now and with Mothering Sunday on March the 11th. Yes, you're welcome for the reminder and you can now forget again until you pass a petrol station on Sunday morning and panic. I interviewed Rosalind Bragg, the director of Maternity Action, a charity that, as their website says, are committed to ending inequality and improving the health and well-being of pregnant women, partners and young children from conception to early years. Their current campaigns include ending unfair redundancies of pregnant women and for equal rights to maternity care for all women, both of which we've discussed quite a bit. Now, I should say, I don't know if this was too early in the morning for me or I hadn't had enough tea, but this is some of the worst question asking I've done in ages. I mean, my second question is structured, I don't know, like some sort of drunk Yoda. Anyway, I mean, I've left it all in because then you can use it as a guide as to how not to ask questions. And luckily, Roz brilliantly answered everything. So for current parents, those who are thinking of becoming parents, those of you who, like me, are going to go through this any day now, and any of you who, you know, would just like humanity to continue, which, yes, is a debatable want at times, I hope you all find this very informative. Here is Ruz. I wanted to jump in with a question that's uh, it has been in the news lately. So this is why I sort of wanted to ask this first. Um, but the government are currently, uh, they've got a campaign, I believe it's called Share the Joy, where they're trying to encourage more parents to take up shared parental leave in their child's first year. Um, is that a good idea? And is it at all feasible?
1: Yeah, hi, Tien. And yes, it's, it's a good question to ask, actually, because I think there's a lot of media coverage of this campaign to encourage shared parental leave uh, at the moment. It's incredibly important to be supporting both parents to take leave in the child's first year. And I do think shared parental leave is a useful step towards that. It is a very complicated system. It could be made a lot more simpler and a lot more accessible for parents. So I think in a way, communicating about it is only one step in what we need to do to be able to support parents to take that leave, for both parents to take that leave in their child's first year
0: cool i mean i've I've read quite a lot of criticisms about how the, the sort of government are going about it. in that they're saying that it's uh you know it's, it's sort of a, a reverse of the, the the gender pay gap that we have in a lot of uh workplaces where women are being paid less there's there's a problem with that uh affecting men in that a lot of the men who are being paid more unfortunately now mean that they can't then be taking off work because the shared parental leave means that they'd be earning an awful lot less so th- there seems to be quite a lot of issues I i could be getting this wrong but is it is, is the way that it's being proposed workable or are there are there other ways that it needs to be done?
1: Well, I think the, the very low rates of statutory pay are a major problem, not just for men taking leave, but also for women taking leave. Um, it's a huge problem for families to go from their normal incomes down to the very low rates of statutory pay, which are £141 a week when you hit the flat rate. Um it, that, that's a huge barrier for everyone, I think, and, and the UK is falling well behind other parts of Europe in the rates of pay. But I do think when we're looking at the barriers for men taking leave, pay is one of those, but it's certainly not the only one. I think there are a lot of men who are very fearful that if they take leave, they'll be treated badly by their employer, that they might be denied promotion opportunities, that they might even be um, not get their contract renewed. They see a lot of women being treated badly when they have their baby. And so they're quite concerned that they don't get put in what's often considered the mummy track of not being viewed as committed and a reliable employee. So I do think that's a huge barrier. And and we do know that the rates of maternity discrimination in the UK are astoundingly high. It's three quarters of all mothers will experience some form of discrimination at work when they become pregnant.
0: That's well wow, that's really shocking three quarters i mean and I know that's one of the things that returned to action uh that you're tackling and campaigning on quite a lot i i didn't realize it was three quarters of of women that are pregnant and what that's very upsetting in that surely we should be a society that kind of wants to help people bring up their children uh, for their the future generation uh, you know that's it's one of those things that absolutely baffles me when we're not caring for or helping people to care for their children um did the i know the government committed to reviewing the issue of discriminatory redundancies against expected new mothers uh, last year did they ever actually review the issue
1: has anything further happened with that well no that's the short answer no they haven't reviewed the issue I mean I think we've got this very good research showing the scale of maternity discrimination so three quarters of pregnant women and new mothers experience some form of discrimination one in nine lose their job because of uh, discrimination It's unlawful discrimination. Um, and a really key issue in that is redundancies. We have a ludicrous number of women who find themselves being made redundant after they announce their pregnancy, when they're out of the office on maternity leave, or just shortly after they return. And the current laws just aren't effective in protecting their rights. So we had the government commit to review the legal protections. Um, they gave that commitment January of 2017. A great media splash, a lot of attention on this and then um, does nothing since then. So we're getting really frustrated that this area, which is critically important to women to be able to keep their jobs, has just been uh, kicked into the long grass. And I should say that when we're talking about fathers taking leave, these protections are equally important. You don't want men wondering that they take some leave and find themselves being given the same very poor treatment that women get and lose their job as a result of that, that leave to care for their baby.
0: So if, if the government are making no headway on this, has there been any headway with, uh, you know, a, a maternity action? Have you worked with any companies that are making uh, individual headway on this or is it still just dead in the water overall?
1: Well, I think the, the research shows that the problems of maternity discrimination are problems across the entire um, economy, industry sectors, all industry sectors, all sizes of employers. It's not something where you'd say there's one particular part of the economy in which this is being done extremely well. And unfortunately, when you look at larger companies, they'll have great policies, but you will find patches where there's some incredibly poor practice. So we don't tend to sort of identify particular companies as being outstanding here. What we really want to see is government changing the laws so that we're really shifting the onus of Um, proof away from women to employers to be able to say that they actually go through a process to assess their decision making and check that they're not being um, discriminatory before they actually go through the redundancy process.
0: Sure, sure, that'd make, a, that'd make a much greater change or a lot more quickly as well if that happened, definitely. Um, I Slightly selfish question for you, really, um, in that I uh, am due to be a parent imminently and uh, my wife and myself uh, are self-employed. Um, and as you sort of mentioned earlier, my, my wife, that means she she only gets to take sort of state uh, maternity allowance, which is just £140 a week. And what we're realising is that... that when she's on that she's not allowed to take more than 10 checking in work days during her maternity pay otherwise they cancel the maternity pay period which feels very strange I mean where does the 140 pound figure come from and it really doesn't feel like as much protection for people who are self-employed or on zero hours contracts or anything like that if they uh, are pregnant
1: I think it's very clear that uh, anyone who's self-employed or on zero-hours contracts has got extraordinarily poor rights when it comes to pregnancy, maternity, new fatherhood, the works. I think this is an area where the law is flagging well behind uh, what's actually needed uh, to support parents in the workplace. There was a time when self-employment was relatively rare. Now, it's it's really standard part of the um, way in which people work. Um, I think the model that is being used for uh, self-employed maternity leave and pay arrangements is is really outdated and just not flexible enough to be able to accommodate the lives that people lead. If you are self-employed, then there's enormous pressure to be able to keep your business alive while you're um, looking after a new baby. So the arrangement of um, maternity allowance payments just doesn't really fit with that the, the 10 checking-in days is um, mirroring provision in the mainstream employment framework in which you can have 10 keeping-in-touch days to go into the office or do some training. Um, but that, as I say, doesn't really make a lot of sense when you're looking at self-employment. And, and I think this figure of £140 pounds a week... This is the flat rate um, which is paid to people on statutory maternity, statutory paternity, statutory shared parental leave after this, there's an initial six weeks of wage replacement and then it, all of those other leaves, to the extent that they're paid at all, are pay at this flat rate. This is an astoundingly low rate of pay and there's no question that this is um, not sufficient to be able to enable families to support themselves um, when they've got the additional expenses of a new baby Um, and what's worrying is that the it hasn't even increased in line with inflation in recent years and alongside that we've been cuts to a whole series of maternity benefits so I think the financial pressures on new parents are extraordinarily heavy and I think when we're looking particularly at the self-employed parents which you know you've said that you and your wife are then um yeah, then I think you're dealing with a whole range of new pressures, which really, I think we need to have a much more sensible approach to um, when we're redesigning our leave and pay arrangements. Mm,
0: absolutely. Is there, I mean, is the one, uh, forgive me, ignorance here, but is the 140 rate a, a national rate as well or does it rem- a change at all to do with area?
1: No, it's fixed across the UK. Um, what you have is is a whole series of, of rates of statutory benefits which are set and adjusted each year. So each April you'll see an increase or indeed sometimes a decrease in these rates um, and that applies as the statutory provision right across the UK. So um, the it's, a, it's £141, pounds, is the flat rate for statutory maternity pay, it's the flat rate for maternity allowance, it's the flat rate for statutory paternity pay and it's the flat rate for shared parental pay. So all of the different bits of leave and pay which are available in the child's first year, that's the flat rate which applies to that.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely crazy because, I mean, you know, again, sort of uh, from a a selfish personal point of view, we're London based and so that barely covers anything, (laughs) which is so very strange. And uh, uh, to think that that's not even regionally uh, sort of, uh, what's the word, you know, that they don't even kind of specify it to do with regional rates and regional issues is is a, a really odd
1: thing. Yeah, no, I was going to say, well, I think what what we used to see, I think probably if you go back, you know, not even 10 years, you would have seen a whole pattern of benefits which surrounded pregnancy and new parenthood, which meant that statutory maternity pay and maternity allowance and all of those rates of pay were just one of the payments which new parents would receive. But what, we, but what we've seen is a real winding back of those. So the Health in Pregnancy Grant, which used to be available to all parents, um, that's gone. That's no longer available. Things like um, the child benefit arrangements have been capped um, and there's a ceiling of of earnings after which you can't uh, receive them. There's the Sure Start Maternity Grant, which was, you know, £500 payable on the birth of the baby. That was a very valuable grant, um, particularly for middle and lower income earners. And now that's extraordinarily hard to get. So what we've seen is the whole... um, environment of um, practical financial support to new parents really being wound back so that yes everyone's focusing on this 141 pounds a week because that's all they're likely to get Um, and I do think you know we need to be giving a bit of thought to how we should be supporting new parents and you know the very practical financial questions which they're dealing with should be you know at the forefront of policy unfortunately (laughs) I don't think they're there at the moment
0: Last week, before disgraced MP Liam, the disgraced Fox of Disgrace, did his pointless road to Brexit speech, which involved him reading off a sheet and both praising the EU deal with South Korea and how great it was for the UK, before then saying we need to leave the customs union because it's not great for the UK, and then contradicting all the things he said about the customs union two years ago... Before that, the government's former secretary in the Department of International Trade, Sir Martin Donnelly, said that giving up access to the EU market and its existing trade agreements was rather like rejecting a three-course meal now in favour of the promise of a packet of crisps later. Which... I have a problem with, because I do a lot for the promise of a packet of crisps. Also, like, what flavour of crisps, Martin? And it depends what the three-course meal is. I mean, look, I do understand the analogy, but can't it be a bit more specific? I mean, if Sir Martin had said the horrible Walker's salad cream crisps that they tested that tasted a lot like, you know, vomit, I'd get it. I mean, come on, Sir Martin, just don't let Brexit ruin crisps for me as well. That's all I'm saying. And Theresa May has given up crisps for Lent, so how does that even work? God, it's all so complicated. Crisps. Sorry, I just really love crisps. Anyway, it's really not worth mentioning Fox's speech, apart from, as context to the crisps question, because his penultimate road-to-Brexit talk added pretty much minus anything to the debate. Which was handy, as it meant with the final speech in the series that hopefully won't be recommissioned for a second, on account of it being mind-numbingly dull with a shit cast and terrible script, Theresa May was able to add a tiny amount of clarity, bringing where we are back to square one. Woo, yeah. After speeches from Dopey Petty, Empty and Crock, May has assured us that we, the British public, know that we'll lose a certain amount of access to the single market, that the European Courts of Justice will continue to have some jurisdiction over the rights of EU citizens in the UK, and that May wants the UK to have access to certain EU agencies but not other ones, that the UK has close alignment and protections with Eurotom and the single energy market, and that somehow after Brexit, we're going to keep an open border between Ireland and Northern Ireland, but also definitely leave the customs union, something that can't happen as the EU have said that it definitely can't. Basically, there's lots of things the UK would really like, but hey, we aren't just having our cake and eating it anymore, but we did bring a cake round as an offering and we'd like to serve ourselves first if possible, and now you can't have that slice with the fancy chocolate decorations on as we'd like that and we ate it before serving. So what we now have is confirmation on stuff that we should have had confirmation on 18 months ago. Brilliant. And with any luck, by the time transition period is over, we'll have some clarification on what the UK needs to do during the transition period. But May has accepted we'll lose single market access, so there's some realism in there, which is good, side by side with unrealism on the Irish border and customs union. It's like a film that's based on a true story, whereby the lead character has the same name as someone who actually exists, but the rest of it they made up while drunk, and it's full of orcs and spaceships. The Brexit chief, and character in Scandi Noir who you think did it, but he didn't, but he did something else real bad, Guy Verhofstadt, said that May's speech did not move beyond vague aspirations, which suggests he obviously hasn't met her before, because that's basically her USP. And Brussels has said that May's customs idea is fantasy, which is a really dull fantasy, and that kind of explains why The Phantom Menace was such a load of toss. Probably one of the biggest issues, still, above all of this, is the Irish border, which many Brexiteers seem to think will be solved by complaining about the EU being unreasonable about their own borders. I mean, how is it that the UK voted Brexit to take control of its own border, but as soon as the EU and Ireland express the same notion, they're being unreasonable? I wonder if, to hammer the point home, the EU should start doing some massive ukip billboard adverts showing thousands and thousands of Brits just queuing up in the masses to get over the border at Killeen. So the EU say the UK can't have what it wants. The UK government say, hey, we've listened, and now we just like some of the things that we want, please, even though several of those things are things that the EU said that we can't have. It's like leaving your job, but assuming you can still pop by occasionally to use the lose, make a cuppa and collect your Christmas bonus. So, what's going to happen to the UK if May sticks to this vague plan? Well, either we get a goods-only deal, like Canada, which will probably actually be pretty bads for the UK, but not as bads as a no-deal, but it will mean some sort of Irish border which is not good. Or, as former Prime Minister and inspiration for all of Dulux's grey colours, John Major suggests, we all have a second referendum, stop the threat of more violence in Northern Ireland and generally stop being massive silly-billies about everything. And that's where we are in British politics right now, where a sensible voice of reason is the man who has succeeded as Conservative Party leader by William Hague. This is end-of-days level shit, people. And of course, John Major has already been called a traitor for his opinions by Conservative MP Nadine Dorries, a woman who the only time she benefited the UK was to leave it to do I'm a Celebrity and eat bugs. But this is the problem. Any suggestion of sensibility is still classed as against the will of the people, because if the people want to dive headfirst into spikes, then what kind of arsehole would protect those people, sit down with them afterwards, and make sure it was actually what they wanted to do? Only a terrible arsehole, of course. As Theresa May tried to justify her speech in the comments today, angry thumb Ian Duncan-Smith said the UK should not accept it could not have the deal it wanted, as cake exists to be eaten and cherries exist to be picked. And this is why we're not going anywhere. But also exactly why we need to send Ian Duncan-Smith an awful lot of urinal cakes ASAP. Ugh! I can't believe Brexit has now ruined cakes, cherries and crisps as well. And now, back to Roz. One of the other, one of the other campaigns that I know uh, Maternity Action is working on, which uh, is, is, I mean, uh, all of these I find quite sort of upsetting. That there's nothing uh, happening with these, but um, your campaign on uh, how vulnerable women, such as asylum seekers, are subject to extra. So not only is there not enough support, but they're subject to extra charges when seeking maternity care on the NHS. Um, how? So c- can you tell me a little bit about that and, and who's affected by it? And then I'm guessing there's been no movement on the Department of Health on this issue either.
1: Yeah, no, it is it's it is a quite frustrating time, I think, to be campaigning on maternity rights. Indeed, I'm, we're not the only charity who's finding life quite difficult in, in getting change to support our, our service users. Um, there is a very clear government policy of charging uh, women from abroad for maternity care, in fact, charging people from abroad for use of the NHS. And while the publicity... That surrounds it is really focusing on people whom they claim are flying into the UK to get free care. The policy extends to people who are living in the UK um, but who don't have the requisite immigration status. So if you've overstayed your visa, if you've been dependent on your partner for your immigration status and the relationship's broken down, if your asylum claim's been refused, there's a whole range of different people, often very vulnerable uh, people, who are subject to charging. And when you look at pregnant women, that vulnerability is increased because quite often they've left a relationship because of domestic violence. Um, And that doesn't really matter in terms of charging for NHS care. They will still be receiving a bill for £4,000 or more for their care. And if they can't pay that within two months, that will be reported to the Home Office. And when they subsequently go to apply to regularise their status, which many of them can do, um, they won't be able to do that until they've paid that bill. So what you have is an extraordinary amount of pressure on women who are often in very, very difficult situations. And, um, you know, we've raised this with government. We've argued that they really need to look at the impact of this policy on pregnant women and new mothers, and particularly on health inequalities issues. You've got very vulnerable women who often have very poor health outcomes. But we're not making much headway on this. I think, We've argued that the government should suspend charging until they've done the research, and, and the response has been, <laughs> "We just haven't got a response." To be honest, I think it's 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 extraordinary that we have such vulnerable women left in such difficult circumstances.
0: Yeah, it's really it's really upsetting. I mean, and what what do, or what can these women do at the moment? Are they sort of mainly having to be supported by charity? Because in in my head, where does that lead? If they can't afford to pay the bill, where, where does that lead to them? going are they is it is that deportation is that homelessness it sort of feels like there's really severe consequences to them having a lack of help and, and gaining these charges
1: yeah. well i think as, as i said if they can't pay those charges and then, then they can't regularize their status i mean there's a few minor legal exceptions to that but generally speaking it means that they've got to raise thousands of pounds in order to get to the point where they can put in a new immigration application um so yeah they're left in in limbo and because they have the immigration status they have, they're not entitled to the mainstream benefit system. So quite often they're dependent on uh, charities, on churches, mosques, uh, on support from the local authority. Uh, we, we have women who are living on £30 pounds a week um as Gosh. they've got accommodation, but their spending money is thirty pounds a week for themselves and their new baby. Uh, it's impossible to recoup the charges from them while they are in that situation. It's it's certainly clear to us that a lot of these women are very happy to set up a repayment plan. But clearly they're not in a position to make those repayments when they're in this particular sort of circumstance of um, destitution.
0: Well, wow. it's, it's, yeah, completely, again, another policy is completely baffling to me uh, as to how it works. Um, I mean, the next question, which I sort of feel like we've already got some answers to uh, in, in our conversation already, but how do we, you know, how does the UK fare in general compared to other countries on maternity care? Because a lot of the times I hear, say, for example, how amazing Scandinavia are on on, on maternity care, and things like this, and how we don't seem to be anywhere near there. Um are there, you know, are, yeah, how, how, how are we doing?
1: In terms of health care, the UK has got a fantastic system of maternity care, I mean, apart from <laughs> the charging, of course, it's, it's a universal system, with the exception of these, these migrant women, and that's quite important in promoting early access to maternity services. So, I think we've got a, quite a cost-efficient system, which has some fantastically good outcomes. I think it stands in contrast to places like the US, where we've actually seen maternal mortality rates rise in some parts of the country. The UK has had a steady improvement over time. And, of course, the the numbers of women who who don't survive childbirth here are remarkably low. There are other parts of Europe which might have slightly better figures, but I think really we're seeing good practice in the the UK. I don't think there's anything about our maternity care which is um, falling behind. I think the biggest worry at the moment is that we need more midwives in maternity, delivering maternity care, and I think the pressure on NHS finances means that there's those women, those midwives aren't being employed, but also that we're not investing in the long term training and um, developing the workforce so that when we have a huge number of women retiring in their 50s, which is just about to come upon us, we won't have the midwives ready to step up and take in, take those roles. So I think while at the moment we've got a great system, I do think the planning for the future is not as strong as it could be.
0: Sure. And, and I'm guessing like you said it's really good for mater- sort of health maternity care, but then uh, how do we fare in terms of uh, kind of the longer care for for mother and child uh, post post birth? Um, are we then still doing all right? Because it doesn't sound like we're doing very well in those states.
1: Well, I think if you if you look at the healthcare system, that that's pretty good. I think we're not doing too badly there. What we aren't doing well is what's often called the social determinants of mm. health: so housing, income, employment, um, safety, and. That's where things like your rates of maternity pay and the benefit system, which supports new parents, that's when that comes into play. And of course, you know, the right to be able to keep your job when you have a baby. And I, I don't think the UK is doing very well in that at all. The, the, the primary objective to sort of support families is to be able to support them to stay in work if they're working that they can stay and work. It's the best way for women to be able to progress in their careers is to be able to stay in the same job um, once they've had a baby. Um, And certainly it's best for families if you're able to have, you know, a good income coming in from parents, both in employment. But that requires everything to come together. You need to have your maternity discrimination laws in place. You need to effectively enforce them. Alongside that, you need to have flexible childcare. You need to have the financial supports coming in during pregnancy and new parenthood, which give parents real choices about that balance of work and family responsibilities. And I think we really haven't got anywhere near where we need to be with that. You certainly look look at places like Scandinavia and you see wraparound childcare, you see people's working hours sort of fitting in around their family responsibilities. You don't hear anything about the maternity discrimination issues we're facing here. And you see good, solid financial support for parents taking leave in their child's first year. I think that's a fantastic model to look for. It's not cheap, but I think the long-term benefits are very clear.
0: Yeah, I mean, because there's part of me that also thinks, that, you know, surely if, if, if women are able to keep their jobs and not being sort of forced to be made redundant, there's, a, there's an economic benefit as well for the whole country and that more people are in work and more people are putting money back into the economy. You know, it feels to me like there's a, there's a greater societal benefit as well as just a, a personal family benefit.
1: There's no question on that. There there has been some research done on the costs of maternity discrimination. I don't have the figures in front of me at the moment, but what it did say was that while there are short-term savings for employers if they engage in some forms of discrimination that fall short of forcing a staff member to leave, they do lose money when they have a staff member leave. It costs them to recruit and train and replace that staff member. And the costs, obviously, to women are quite significant no matter what happens. Losing their job, of course, costs them a lot more than just day-to-day discrimination. But the whole thing costs women, particularly in long-term career impacts. But on top of that, there's the cost to the state. Because when women lose their jobs, that's a, a tax revenue stream which has gone. But also, because they have new babies, they're much more likely to be dependent on the welfare system to be able to support them at this time. So we're looking at costs and benefits which could have been avoided by the women being able to retain their jobs.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so many reasons that this needs to be dealt with. Um, So, which leads me to asking, um, how can, how can the listeners to this show, how can they get involved with maternity actions campaigns? Um, What's the best way for them to help uh, both the charity and kind of push for better maternity care in general?
1: Yeah, no, fantastic question. Love hearing that that sort of question, (laughs) we'd we'd love to have people involved in our campaigns. I think the the work we're doing on maternity discrimination at work at the moment, we've got a campaign running on redundancy and I think that's one where it would be incredibly helpful if people would write to their MPs. We've got the facility to do that. If you go to our main website, maternityaction.org.uk, you can click through to uh, a write to your MP facility and I think that's incredibly important in sort of just pushing politicians to raise this up their agenda. So that, that's really helpful. Follow us on Twitter, follow us on Facebook. We'll be on Instagram soon. And I think the opportunities to take action will come up through those channels because there's times when it's really, really helpful to sort of be able to make a bit of a fuss about an issue and just give it some visibility. But I think, oh, oh and of course, if they can people can donate to us, even better. We desperately need the funds to be able to do the work we do. But I think if we can have people sort of talking about this, with their friends and their families and their networks i think that's the best way to be able to get this issue more profile
0: cool and and just one final question um which is that i ask all our guests really um is just that uh, apart from maternity action are there any other uh, campaigns or um maybe even people uh, that speak um about about rights for new parents uh, that you would recommend listeners check out or follow online if they want to research this even more
1: yeah, no, I think it's it's a good question. There's a whole lot of work being done in this area, some of it more, and more positive and some of it less positive. I think there's a lot of actually, unfortunately, there's a lot of pretty ordinary policy work being done. But I think the TUC, the Trade Union Congress, I think is a really interesting place to look at on this because I think they've got a great breadth of view on maternity and parental rights. I think they'd be useful to look at. The Equality and Human Rights Commission has a project called Working Forward where they've got employers getting involved to address maternity discrimination. That's a good one to have a look at and a good one to be able to ask your employer to sign up to, which I think is a lovely action that people have available to them.
0: Thank you very much to Ros for the interview. Uh, Maternity Action's main website can be found at maternityaction.com org.uk and they are on facebook and on twitter at maternity action and what they really need right now are donations to keep going so if you can please help their much-needed campaigns out then do as per usual while this might or might not be on a break next week i still need suggestions of interviewees so anyone you think i should speak to or a subject i should interview someone about do get in touch via <laughs> it's like a it's like a chipmunk. It's like a chipmunk told you the link's a really smart chipmunk. <laughs> And that is all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Thank you for listening, or playing overly loudly on the back of a bus while popping and locking and upsetting the old folks, or perhaps playing directly into the ground so all the earthworms get woke. Whatever you use this show for, thank you, and please do donate to the Patreon and Ko-fi pages, review wherever reviews live, and do get in touch at all the places the squeaky little chipmunk voice told you about. Big thanks to ACAST for cradling this show in their digital arms, and to my brother, the last sceptic, for all the beats and prompts. I may be back next week, um, and if I am, I'll probably be delirious without sleep and laughing about how Boris Johnson has tried to pass between North and South Korea by just paying a congestion charge fee. Bye! This week's show is brought to you by Theresa May's Cherry Cakes, containing no cherries or cake, just an empty cardboard box where you can imagine your wildest baking possibilities, costing only £252 billion at first.